This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Blog Talk Radio.
best they have ever put all the gear on and uh, tried to move around in it and uh, tried to shoot in it and stuff like that. And, and usually the quest, the answer is no. They, you know, they haven't. There's not a good place to do it because most of the ranges don't want you to do anything like that. They don't want you to move around. They want you to get in the box, stay in the box, shoot uh, slowly and quietly. Uh, and they don't want you getting into different positions or, or, or anything else or doing transitions uh, from rifle to pistol, any any, any crazy stuff like that. Uh, so, so folks don't get a chance to do that. Now, they may put all their gear on minus the rifle and pistol and uh, go for a jog in it or something like that, but very rarely do folks get a chance to have all their gear on and move around in it and shoot. And that's exactly what we want you to do. We want you to see how the, the, all of these things have to function together in order for you to be uh, successful in uh, certain situations. That means we want you to have uh, all the gear on that you would uh, that you would normally wear if you were uh, if you were headed into some situation that required you to to think about being self reliant and being secure and stuff like that. And you're going to uh, move along various terrain for four and a half miles. And uh, at eight points along the trail, you're going to stop and you're going to shoot. So the, uh, some of the stations will be rifle stations. Some will be pistol. There's a, one or two usually that is a uh, combination. And then in between the stations, there'll be different uh, obstacles that you'll have to negotiate with your gear, with your rifle and your pistol and, and whatever other gear that you're carrying so that you can see how that gear is going to function. If you're trying to climb over a wall or if you're trying to uh, negotiate uh, a footbridge or whatever you're doing, how is your gear going to respond to that movement? So that will be April 11th, and uh, we should have the uh, we should have the uh, the Eventbrite tickets open up in the next couple of days so that if you want to pre-register, you can. Normally, we, we try and close it out at 100 folks because that's about all we can do in one day. And uh, and so it's better as soon as we get this open if, uh, if you get uh, signed up as early as possible. We'll also be, we, uh, be using a certain number of folks uh, as temporary additions to the staff during the run. And uh, usually that requires about 30, 35 uh, folks. <clears throat> and uh, if you would like to uh, to work to work with us on this, you'll, what you'd end up doing is everybody's going to run on Saturday, the uh, general public. And then uh, if you want to assist us, what we do is we have the, the staff and the the temporary staff and stuff. We everybody uh, runs on Friday, and then you also learn how to run uh, run the stations, and then you will run one of the stations, one of the shooting stations, on Saturday, and uh, we'll waive your entry fee, entry fee, which is a hundred bucks, and your your scores still and go into the scores for the uh, for general attendance. So. <clears throat> And if you'd like to do that, you can uh, send me a message at uh, uh, RWVA Range Scout, all one word, lowercase, 
R W V A R A N G E S C O U T at gmail dot com. Send me a uh, an email, and uh, I will uh, shoot it to Mark. And Mark usually uh, handles a uh, getting the staff together, make sure they've got uh, all of the information about the event coming up and everything else like that, keeping them in the loop. But we'll need about uh, 30, 35 folks to assist, uh, in addition to the uh, 100 folks that come on Sunday, I mean on Saturday. All right, uh, we'll be having a class uh, in February, and I can't get the date exactly down yet. We'll be having a, a class on beef processing. And the reason I don't have the date down yet is because uh, I've got to figure out a good day in the next uh only the next ten days, whenever I can pro- I can harvest one of the beefs that I'm gonna use because it'll have to be done like uh you know, like on the cooking shows where you show the folks how to prepare a dish but you came in early and you've already prepared one so you can pop it out of the oven, uh, you know, as soon as you pop the one in the oven. You have to do the same thing with beef to age the beef, uh to make sure that it gets uh you know, a better taste to the meat and gets tender. So I'll need to hang one uh, three weeks prior to the class. That way we can, uh, when we have the class, we'll go out and we'll harvest the the animal in the field. We'll do everything, uh, you know, we'll uh, skin it, uh, remove the entrails, we'll uh, quarter it, and get it ready to hang in the cooler. And then... Uh, and just do some other stuff. And we'll be talking about the philosophy of uh, uh, of beef and small game processing. We'll also have some other. Uh, we'll probably have a hog and maybe some rabbits too at the same time to do. And uh, and then that will be day one. On day two, the beef from the cooler, and we will process the beef. Uh, you know, into the cuts that we want out of it. And then uh, if we have a hog, then uh, we'll do the hog too. And then we'll probably uh, we'll have everything set up so that we can actually make some sausage and uh, and the folks can take some sausage home with them. <clears throat> but uh, check the, keep checking the website because we'll be doing, uh, we're doing this probably in uh, mid-February. That uh, will give me time to hang a beef between now and then. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we've got uh, the discussion tonight is on gardening because, uh, like I said, it's uh, it, it's it's too cold to actually. Uh, get started with any planting, but there's a lot more to do besides planting uh, uh, before it gets warm enough to actually get stuff in the ground. Uh, You have to uh, determine where you're going to put your garden, what what type of garden you're going to have, what you're going to grow in the garden. You You can start preparing your soil now. Uh, if you're going to be growing uh, container gardens, same thing. You can uh, start locating the containers you're going to use. You can start getting them ready. If you're going to be doing things like uh, 
uh, hay bale gardening. And I'm going to get uh, the guy who there's there's a couple of folks that are really really very knowledgeable about hay bale gardening. I'm going to try and get them to come on in the next couple of weeks because in the next uh, oh in the next six weeks or so we'll probably have at least one or two more shows on gardening because. As you guys know, food is one of the five legs of the self-reliance survival stool. You've got water, food, shelter, energy, and security. And food is is very important. And for you to have the ability to provide yourself with food is very important. In most folks' plans, one of the things that you try and plan on doing is you try to kind of make sure that you are marrying up the amount of food that you're storing with the ability to produce more food. That means that you've got an X amount of food uh, that you're storing up with, which is the, the minimum of which is enough food to take you from uh, like the end of summer until your first crops are able to be harvested uh, because that's that's the, the longest amount of time it may you may have to do without food uh, because if you're if there's no other place to get it and you're having to produce your own then you need to be able to to have something to eat until your garden starts producing and then you certainly need to have the ability to grow your garden. <clears throat> That means you need to keep uh, a stock of seeds on hand. And what kind of seeds do you need? Well, uh, the uh, that's going to depend on what you eat and, you know, what you like, what you want. And, you know, if you don't like uh, rutabagas or Brussels sprouts, then that, that may not be – that may be something that you don't want to invest in. Uh, try and make sure that you have plenty of the – Play the seeds for the food that you actually like to eat because see, that's the only place you're going to get it is by you producing it. So so one of the things that we can start out with doing is <clears throat> determining now where you're going to put this garden. Now, if you already have a, a garden location, then then you're stepping ahead of the game. You know, if you already have a place that you normally put in uh, a garden, then you're good to go. And we'll talk about uh, the soil preparation in just a minute. But first, if you don't have a location, then you need to select one. And one of the most important factors in selecting a location, listen, uh, selecting a garden location is is going to be one of the most important parts uh, of this equation, is if you don't have your garden in the right place, then you can't expect to get the most out of it. Plants are going to need sunlight. And uh, almost all of the fruits and vegetables uh, are going to, and, and all of the herbs too, are going to require uh, uh, at a minimum six hours of full sun every day in order for them to carry out the photosynthesis that they need to grow. And that's, there's, there's really no good, there's no way around this. I mean, if you if you can't get uh, a location that's going to get a minimum of six hours of sunlight every day, then you cannot expect 
to get the most out of this garden. There's no other... This is a non-negotiable factor. So what you need to do is you need to determine where the sun is shining on your property, in the areas that you have uh, that you have thought about or that you would like to think about uh, planting a garden. <clears throat> you need to actually go out and observe them. And you can take some stakes and stake out a location and uh, and watch it over the course of the day uh, because, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys that uh, the sun, the path of the sun changes throughout the day, right? It moves from one point in the sky to the other. And that means that just because the sun is shining on your garden at uh, 8 a.m. does not mean it's going to shine on it at uh, 1 p.m. All right? So you need to figure out <clears throat> where what areas uh, are going to get the minimum of six hours of sunlight. Uh, if you have a... If you're planting on the... Uh, uh, on the west side of a big tree, uh, that means that your your plot is not going to get any sun uh, for the first uh, the first five hours or so of the day. And the sun they're going to get is going to be that hot sun. It's all of a sudden going to materialize about twelve thirty or one o'clock, and. Uh, and run through the the rest of the day. <clears throat> so if you can if you can look around your property and figure out where you can get a spot that has uh, that has maximum sun exposure, and and remember that if you're doing it now, that the sun that's shining through that tree onto the location that you're planning. It's shining through that tree right now because it is winter and there are no leaves on the tree. So you have to remember that uh, that 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 shade or that that thrown by that leafless tree right now. There's probably uh, like a twenty percent or thirty percent shade. that's going to end up being a uh, a seventy-five or ninety-five percent shade once the tree leaves out. So remember that, and be sure and factor that into their <clears throat> into your equation, because uh, because I've, I've certainly seen it before, and I did it one time many years ago that I uh, put my my garden in a certain area that I thought was going to be just perfect for it, <laughs> because it was so nice and sunny in the morning, and. Uh, and then the garden was doing poorly, and I started realizing that uh, by two o'clock that plot was in a full shade for the rest of the day. So make sure you're paying attention uh, to the to the location and to the sun. Uh, what about uh, what about water? You know, uh, if in in a in an absolutely uh, perfect scenario, yeah, you don't have to worry about water because uh, because the good Lord will cause it to rain. Uh, you know, 
like a uh, a half inch or so every other day. But unfortunately, I've yet to find that location. Uh, uh, the the garden is going to have to put in with considerations for water. And I want you to think about this in two ways. One, uh, think about it in respect to uh, you using whatever utilities you have available. And two, with respect to the idea that those utilities uh, may or may not be around uh, at some point and that garden is still going to need water. So that means that you may have to uh, you may have to irrigate it by hand in some way, all right? So be sure and think about that there's a location that you can get that has uh, uh, a minimum of six hours, and it has say like a a very slight slope, so that you could actually uh, you know carry water and uh, pour it up on one end and let the water uh, run uh, all the way down the uh, each of the uh, the, the uh, paths there and irrigate it. That might be something to put into your considerations. Uh, <clears throat> so be sure and think about water, because the other thing is, you know, if it's... Uh, if you say, okay, I'm going to put the garden, but I'm not going to put it here by the house. I'm going to put it out, uh, you know, a couple of hundred yards out, uh, you know, away from the house in the back of the, the lot or, you know, in whatever, in another field or something. That means that you're either going to, you're going to, have to you're still going to have to be watered. At some point, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to have to assist with uh, irrigation in the garden. So are you going to be able to do that Uh Make sure that you're thinking about the irrigation that you'll need for your for your garden. What about uh, what about the people around you? Now, if you're living out early, there's really no consideration. Uh, but if you if you're in the city, uh, you may have to think about where you're putting it, especially if you're if you're one of those folks that says, hey, uh, I want to use my my brand-new gas-powered rototillers and uh, stuff like that, if you're going to be out there running that uh, for a couple of hours, uh, then maybe you want to make sure you're not rototilling the soil one foot away from your neighbor's uh, kitchen window or something. I don't know. or in your front yard, you know, wherever you guys know, uh, whatever, wherever you're living, you'll just need to think about that too. Also, uh, and we'll talk about this more. I think with I've got a couple of folks I'd like to come on and talk to you specifically about that. That's composting, because <clears throat> there's really nothing that is going to replace the uh, the nutrients in your garden that compost, compost, that a well-made compost can supply. So it's really something that you need to start, you need to figure out now and get going and start running. And like I said, we're gonna, we'll have a, a guest on to talk about composting. But composting is just the act of, uh, of taking, uh, uh, 
biological uh, stuff like uh, grass clippings and leaves and uh, and getting those things to break down uh, into uh, into like a uh, you know a rich uh, nutrient packed uh, organic soil. Uh, the problem with this is is that they're not always the uh, the best smelling uh, uh, things in your garden. Now, they shouldn't smell bad. If your compost pile smells really bad, then you've got a problem with it. But it may very well have, you know, a, a very strong, uh, uh, you know, odor from when the material is breaking down. So where are you going to put that? Because you want to have it close to your garden because if it's not close, that means you're going to have to carry it a good distance when it's ready. Uh, or you may be able to put your garden in one place and your compost pile in another place, uh, however, but you need to be thinking about where you're going to put it and about the fact that the compost pile will need some water. It's, it could very well have a, a strong odor, but it's going to be absolutely necessary for you to grow in your garden. Uh, there's also uh, there's also if you're in the city the the fact that uh, that you are having to deal with neighbors and their vehicles and their kids and bicycles and everything else. You know if you have a garden if you put your garden uh, into a location that used to be uh the shortcut for the neighborhood kids from you know avenue a to avenue d they're probably not gonna go they're probably not gonna find a new way around it they're just going to to try and sneak through your garden uh when you're not around looking right uh if you put your garden too close to where somebody else uh where somebody else parks they could very well back into the garden or, you know, uh, anything like that. So make sure that you're thinking about that. Uh, if you... Uh, you also need to make sure that, you know, when we're talking about uh, irrigating your garden, making sure that it's got plenty of water and stuff, you want to make sure that you're not locating it in the opposite end of the spectrum. That is, in the 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 place in your yard where water usually pools, you know, where you have like a kind of a swampy area or something like that because too much water is going to be just as rough on these plants as not enough. So if you've got an area that, that stays wet or stays wet longer uh, than some other uh, locations, then you'll either need to... Uh, We'll either need to figure out a way to get the soil to drain better or not put it in that location, okay? So, uh, that is the one of the first things you need to do is figuring out where you're going to put the uh, uh, the garden, you know, finding a good location to it. And uh, and making sure that it's getting uh, a minimum of six hours of sunlight 
and that it's going to be uh there's going to be a way for you to get water to it uh that it's not in a high traffic area <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> and uh if you live rurally you may not have to worry about a lot of those uh considerations but you may need to think about uh <clears throat> wherever you're locating it uh that it's going to be somewhere that you can, uh, like, kind of keep it safe from either domestic or wild animals. You know, if you put it uh, too far away from your house, uh, you may not be able to. Uh, you may not be able to tell or know when uh, wild animals are in there or domestic animals, whatever. Uh, you'll probably need to think about <clears throat> putting a fence around the location to keep out the uh, critters because I'll tell you, <clears throat> uh, just e- even one or two deer uh, in your garden uh, can destroy uh, what might end up being, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of uh of harvested food in one night. A couple of deer can uh, get into the garden and they can completely ravage it. So make sure you're thinking about uh, that when you're selecting your location too. Are you going to be able to... uh, uh, Are you going to be able to make sure that that there are no animals that are getting into it? Uh, And... uh, uh, and well, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about beneficial atom, animals in a little while, but uh, <clears throat> let's talk about the the soil now because uh, that's cer- certainly something that you could be doing uh, right now is getting your soil ready. So. <clears throat> uh, the the soil for your garden is is going to be just as important as the location. I mean, without without a good, uh, healthy, nutrient rich soil, uh, you can forget about uh, having a uh, having a, a a really good crop. You ready to jump in there, Sam? Oh, I'm just waiting for a beneficial spot, Scout. <laughs> oh, you mean a spot for your garden? Oh, no. You've got a garden. You guys going. have a garden there. we got a big one. You know, you, well, getting that soil where do you guys have your that? Ours is about uh, 60 yards south of the house uh, in, a, in a relatively flat area. There's about a foot of drop in 120 feet out there. So I can water at the top end of the rows and everything will work down well. Oh, that's and, really uh, good. That's actually a really good, uh, I mean, a really good situation because with that, you do, you will have a, a one foot of drop. And in that that distance, that means it's too, uh, the drop is, uh, uh, the grade is shallow enough that the water has time to soak in before running off, so that sounds really good. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, I built uh, my chicken coop is attached to the garden so that in the off-season I let the chickens run out in the garden and eat up all the bugs and fertilize it, eat up all the weed seeds and all that kind of good stuff. And that's that works well for me, too. Well, they, uh, you know, people have, uh, and I've I tried this a couple of times, uh, tried to use the uh, uh, chickens and guineas and stuff like that to uh, to help keep the gardens bug free, and I've had uh, I've had good I've, I've had good things come of this and not so good things because uh, you know they they will eat the bugs, but at the same time I've certainly had plenty of them uh, you know. Uh, look at a tomato and give it a peck, and then another one, and you know, and pretty soon they they you know they decide that they like the tomatoes and they're eating tomatoes, and so uh, no. I only let them out in off season because uh, they they will ravage the garden pretty clean by themselves. But that two or three months a year that they get to run out there, they uh, they stir things up and dig up weed seeds and eat what little weeds are left and, and the bugs that are there and poop it all up good. And uh, in the summertime, right. well, they don't get to they're, run out. They're also, yeah, they're also uh, uh, manuring the the area with their, you know, with their manure, and, and that's certainly beneficial. And I, uh, I take a couple of tons of um, regular manure and spread out there in the fall and uh, disc it in. And uh, I'm going to throw another couple of tons out there pretty quick, probably this weekend, and disc that in and let it work a little bit in the soil uh, until planting time. So it'll be well rotted down and, and uh, some of them nutrients will be available and, and uh, the chickens will work that over for any bugs and grubs and stuff in there too. Right. Right, and... Uh... And that's certainly a good point is uh, if you are going to manure the fields, uh, now is not now's a good time to do it because uh, uh, depending on what uh, type of manure you're getting, you certainly don't want to put uh, manure on your garden while it's still hot and needs to uh, have time to break down in the soil and, uh, and be able to release the nutrients. Like I said, healthy soil is going to be one of the most important parts of your uh, of this equation of making sure that you're you know that you're going to have a good product. So organic soil, which is what you're going to be hoping for, is going to be really rich in humus, and, and humus is just the the end results of decayed uh, or you know organic matter, leaves, grass, uh, the compost, everything like that. And one of the reasons that you want this is because the uh, the the soil that is rich in humus is able to hold water better. It holds the moisture in, in the soil, but at the same time, it allows it to drain. Uh, if you have a really good organic soil, it's actually very loose, very kind of fluffy, uh, has a lot of air. Uh, in the soil has plenty of minerals, uh, so 
uh, and the other thing is that you'll notice, uh, you know, when you're looking at the soil, is that it'll be filled with uh, living organisms, you know, earthworms, fungi, bacteria, everything that's uh, everything that's that's needed for it. Uh, so, how are you going to figure out? Uh, what your soil needs, and uh, you, you're going to have to take a look at the soil, at the soil and the location that you, that you have selected, and try and determine uh, what type of soil it is, what the texture's like, uh, and if it needs uh, anything added. Uh, your soil's texture depends on the like the amount of sand, uh, silt, and clay. Uh, that's in it, they, the mixture of sand, silt, and clay. And uh, sand is going to usually constitute the uh, the largest amount of the soil in your garden. And uh, and it is, those are the particles that whenever you, you take and you rub it together with your fingers, uh, those are the particles that are that feel pretty big and they feel kind of gritty. Uh, like, and you can get individual little pieces, you know, between your thumb and forefinger. Silt is the stuff that's uh, uh, that's a little bit a little bit smaller, a little bit finer, uh, almost like a like a fine ground pepper. And uh, uh, it's when it's wet, it's kind of slippery, uh, and when it's dry, it's kind of like powder. Uh, and then you have the smallest pieces of the equation, which are the pieces of clay. And these are these are very tiny individual pieces. And uh, if the soil, if when you take this soil and you you you're got it in your hand and you're kind of squeezing it together, rubbing it back and forth with your fingers, <clears throat> uh, if the soil feels Kind of rough and gritty, then it's going to be it's going to be mainly sandy. If it feels smooth, you know, like talcum powder, then it's going to be the majority of it will be silt. And if it uh, if it feels kind of hard and, and chunky and rough when it's dry, but but then when it's wet, it's like very slick. Then that's going to be clay. And, and most soils are going to fall somewhere in between in that mix. Uh, but you want to make sure that uh, that you have a good mixture. Now, silty soils uh, are really dense, and they don't drain well because there's no... Because the particles are so fine that when they get wet, they're all locked together, and they, the water has no way to, to slide through it. So... Uh, so the water can't drain real good, uh, and heavy clay soils are are actually even worse because they're very dense and uh, they don't drain well at all. And when they're wet and when they're dry, they're, uh, they're usually hard as a rock and they start cracking up uh, because there's no real particles in between. I mean, there's nothing in between the particles of clay. There's no real organic matter or anything of any kind of microbial life in the soil. So, so what do you got to do? Well, you're going to have to look at this kind of soil you have, determine what it is. If it's a if it's a mainly sandy soil, 
or Quasol, then you're going to have to add, to add uh, some other stuff in with it. And uh, and you're going to get that usually by adding organic matter uh, like uh, compost and aged manure uh, or using, uh, you know, using mulch. <clears throat> mulch is like, uh, you know, chopped up leaves, grass, stuff like that. Uh, the grass clippings from your lawnmower, uh, stuff like that. You can take that and spread it out over the top of your soil now and work it into the soil to add that organic matter into your soil to help uh, break up a silty or, or clay-type soil. The same thing that uh, Sam was talking about a minute ago with with adding in the manure. Now, hopefully, if you get manure, it will be uh, you know nice dry-aged manure by that I mean it's uh you know you can take uh, some in your hand you can crumble it up you can you can sniff it there's not really uh much of a uh, of any kind of a bad smell to it it'll usually be uh you know dry and crumbly uh it won't stick together it'll be uh, you know kind of pretty much a kind of a, a friable uh type uh consistency by then uh, if it's green and wet, still that's you can put it on your you can put it in your garden now, but it it needs a chance to to age out before you start planting into it because the green manure is kind of hot. It has it's a little bit too rough uh, for to be applied directly to plants that you're just starting out. Or you're trying to grow. It needs you you need to. It needs to be aged or composted. Uh, the uh, the organic matter. I know a lot of people say, "Well, I need to put some fertilizer on the uh, on the garden to get it ready." You can do that. You can put. You can add some chemical fertilizer, but the chemical fertilizers are only adding uh, just that. They're adding chemicals. To the to the soil, they're they're not they're not assisting uh, with maintaining the the friable mix that you're trying to get. Only organic matter is going to to do that for you. So, <clears throat> what you're going to need to do is <clears throat> take a look at your soil, determine what type it is, and then add the the correct amount of uh, additional organic matter to it. You know when you look in uh, in like uh, potted plants and stuff that you get from the store, you'll notice that that soil is is usually very loose, very friable, and they'll they'll have added uh, a a good deal of organic matter to it, and even uh, uh, even things, uh, even other things that will help and hold the soil. I mean, hold the moisture in the soil. Uh, you want to. You want your soil, once you've got uh, the organic and everything stuff mixed into it, to be about 25% air, right? So you'll have uh, 75% of solids along with a good mixture of 25% air that is mixed in with the soil. Uh, uh, And let's see... I'll just go ahead and mention this now too: is that 
uh, you know, you'll have to, the way that you'll get this is by working the organic matter into the soil. You know, that's, that's by using a rototiller or by hand turning it, chopping it up with a hoe and a shovel and, uh, and working that organic matter into it. But this makes that, this means that you're going to have to move back and forth in the, in the garden areas, stepping on the, the soil and one of the things that you're trying not to do, though, is compact the soil, recompact it. So you need to think about uh, how to get away from doing that. One of the things I used to do is I just had a uh, like a two foot by two foot uh, chunk of uh, plywood, it was just half inch plywood that I would take and uh, and toss with me. Uh, I'd toss it into the garden, and then I would just uh, I would work on that. I would be standing on that while I was uh, mixing the soil because I didn't want to keep compressing everywhere I, everywhere I took a step with my foot, compressing that soil. <clears throat> so I'd have the uh, either one or two pieces of uh, plywood that I would just move around the, the garden and I would stand on those uh, while I was working the soil. The other thing too is also, uh, and you got to remember the same thing with the uh, with if you're using a rototiller and stuff like that, it, it, that's kind of heavy. It's going to com- compact the soil, and uh, you need to make sure that you're doing as little of that as possible. And try not to uh, try not to do a lot of walking around the garden or stepping in the garden or working in the, the soil in the garden when it's wet. Okay, because that's not it's not going to do you any good at all then, right? Uh, the let's talk about the amount of water that you're going to need. Uh, every the the soil needs to be uh, right around 25 percent water. If you took a uh, you know a, a handful of soil and you weighed it, uh, and then you uh, put it in the oven for a couple of hours, completely dried it out, uh, and then you check the weights one against the other. You would want the dried out weight to be approximately 75% of the uh, of the wet weight, of the initial weight, right? That means that your soil would be approximately 25% by weight uh, water uh, because everything in that, everything in the soil that, that that you need to be in the soil needs water. Uh, all of the, the the insects, the earthworms, the seeds, the, the the fungi, the bacteria, everything that's in there needs water. It needs the right amount of water. Uh, and uh, and like I said, the the soil needs to be of the right material. If it's sandy soil, if there's too much sand, the water is going to shoot straight through it. And it'll take the water good, and it won't. Uh, you won't have. It won't end up being muddy because the water that's going onto the soil is going to shoot straight through it. And when it does, it's going to. Uh, it's not going. To, it's not going to. The plants won't be able to use it because they can't get to it because it's already passed by where their roots are in the soil. Uh, if it's a. Uh, if it's too much clay or too much silt, 
then the water is going to remain in the soil at too high a level for too long, right? So if the plant will end up getting waterlogged, and that will end up suffocating or drowning the plant roots, the all of the the things that live in the soil. And I'm sure you've seen the, you know, in a in healthy soil, you've seen uh, heavy rains come, and next thing you know, the sidewalks are covered with uh, with worms. That's the, that's all of the worms, and there's and there's there are literally thousands of other insects that you can't see with your eyes. They're doing the same thing. They're all they're all trying to climb out of the soil and get out of that water. Well, they'll do that in your garden too, or they'll just or they'll just drown and die, and they'll no longer be benefiting. So, so the water can't shoot through the soil too fast. Can't just sit in the soil and drown everything in it. It's got to be a good, healthy relationship. That means that the soil needs to be draining, draining and drainable, and yet retaining approximately 25% by weight of water in it. <clears throat> so that's uh, that's one of the reasons that you're going to try and get a good mix <coughs> of organic matter <coughs> in your soil. And if there's a, uh, and you can all, you might also need to add some sand uh, to your to your garden if it's uh, if it's too dense. I've yeah, done that before. Can I chime in for a second here? Jump on in at any point. Just jump in. I turned off your mic just a minute ago okay. just because we're getting feedback from it. Okay. Uh, one of the things that that I recommend for new folks. Uh, when you first get out there gardening, and Scott's trying to explain about the proper texture and the tilt of the soil and how much water it's holding, it's very hard to comprehend all of those things and figure it out when you're new to it. Uh, one of the things that I recommend that, that new people in, in getting into gardening, especially if you're going to go into it in a big way, is to go ahead and take advantage of your tax dollars. We all used to laugh watching Green Acres because they had this goofy guy on there named Hank. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, once in a blue moon, you can get something good out of Hank Kimball. And that one good thing that you can do is to get him to uh, ship some of your soil off to the local cow college and get it get it analyzed for you. And you can sit down and look at what's in there, and it'll help you a lot in figuring out what you need to do to get your soil the way it is. They'll tell you how much clay it is, how much sand it is, uh, how much organic material is in it, besides, in a lot of cases, giving you a chemical analysis of it. And uh, if you go down and talk with Hank, and he'll give you a little uh, a little mimeograph sheet, tell you how to go out and collect up some soil from your garden or where you want to put your garden and bag it up and let him send it off to the college and get it analyzed for you that first time around. And then you'll know where you are and it'll give you a better idea what to look for when you're building your soil up. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, because they, the uh, county folks will be glad to do that for you. Yeah, they'll be the county folks are glad to do that. They'll, they'll give you a, a you know a couple of uh, specially made little paper bags, and uh, there's directions on the bags, and they'll also tell you too. You know, you're gonna what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to uh, you know three or four or five locations in your garden. You know, dig the soil up a little bit, and uh, you know, dig down uh, about uh, eight or ten inches, and then uh, you don't have to you don't have to completely kill the whole garden, but you can dig a hole about eight or ten inches uh, deep, and your shovel with a cross, mix that soil up real good, you know, with your hands, and then take a handful of it and put it in the, the sack, and do that three or four locations in your garden, kind of mix it all together, put it in that sack, and take it back to him and send it off, and uh, and they'll tell you what your, what's in the soil, what type of soil it is, what's in the soil, what the soil has too much of or too little of, stuff like that. I wish that I had done that early on. I probably blew three or four years of effort uh, by not doing that myself. Uh, but once I did, yeah, because- I was able to come up with a better strategy for for uh, for making my garden. My soil out here is about 80% clay. It's horrifying to grow anything in. Yeah. And to... And in in a decent-sized garden, it's really hard to come up with enough organic material to uh, loosen that up and and rot in there well. I worked out a technique for it. Because, (laughs) yeah, that that, uh, organic matter you put in is not a one-time thing. You put that in, and it's going to, you know, it's going to, to aid in the in keeping the soil friable and stuff, but it's also going to continue its decay until it's pretty much gone. So you'll have to keep adding it and adding, you know, adding more and different types of organic material until you can get to that balance where it is the right balance. And then you'll have to figure out what you need to do to keep it at that at that level. Because it's going to keep, like I said, it's going to keep deteriorating and uh, decaying and ending up as silt. So you'll have to keep adding fresh material to it in order to keep the, the soil friable. Continual process. you got to feed that soil. And uh, <coughs> after uh, about right. 15 years of working in those two areas down there and, and working with them, that's that's real dirt now. It's real dirt. Yeah. My grandfather, <laughs> yeah, finally. My grandfather <laughs> would pick it up and, and make a ball out of it and flatten it out and roll it around and you take a taste, but say that's good dirt. Plant right there. Uh, but it took a long time to get it that way. <laughs> right, right. And uh, if I had gone down and got hold of Hank Kimball and had him analyze it a little bit, I could have worked out some better strategies for it. It's also very alkaline out here. If you pH it, it comes out at eight point six. That means if you shove a chunk of rebar in it, it'll rust it down to nothing in about six months. And I had to find right. ways to get that soil more acidified. And once I got talking with Hank, I learned how to do that. And I've been paying his wages right. all these years. Might as well go get some good advice from him if you can. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And we're going to talk about the pH and stuff in just a minute because that, it's very important, you know, to the garden. Well, also, just as important is going to be the life 
in the soil. And I say that life, not that the soil itself, particles of sand, are alive, uh, but there are things living in the soil that you, you have to have for for your soul to be healthy. And these are uh, these are actually living things, little little critters uh, that make the that help make the nutrients in the soil to help free them up, make them available to the plants, uh, help keep the soil from binding together. Uh, and these in, include things like the uh, uh, the earthworms, uh, nematodes, the springtails. The, the bacteria that's in the soil, the fungi, the protozoa, mites, uh, all kinds of living things that are in your soil that, that have to be there and they have to be alive and working uh, in order for the soil to be, to be actually healthy soil. Now, some of these things, you can go down to your garden center and stuff. You can buy uh, nematodes and, uh, and certainly some of the other uh, uh, organic uh, uh, bacterias and stuff like that that you can add to the soil. And you may need to, in some cases, give it like a little bit of a, uh, a jump start. But if you do like Sam was talking about and you, you keep the soil healthy by adding the organic material, uh, that is going to... If you do that, if you if you build the organic soil, they will come. Uh if you make the soil a good place for them to live, then they are going to live there, and they're going to be they're going to be more than willing to do the work that they need to do to help the to help the soil out. But it's got to be good organic soil. The uh, adding compost to the soil will improve just about any kind of soil that you get. The uh, the sand soils, the silt soils. If you add uh, enough compost. Uh, it's going to it's going to greatly improve the ability of that soil to to grow those living things and also to grow your plants. Now you can go and buy uh, organic composting if your if your garden is going to be you know fairly large or if this is the first year when you're starting it out. That may be something that you want to consider because uh, uh, unless you once you put in a lot of work and you have uh, three or four or more uh, really good 48-inch uh, by 48-inch by 48-inch compost piles that have all uh, run through their cycles and you're ready to use it, then uh, you may need to buy some, like some organic compost to get yourself started. And then after that, if you just keep your compost pile running, then you can keep adding that to the garden uh, in order to keep it up to, uh, you know, up to snuff, up to the where how you want it to be. But you may need to to buy some to begin with. Now, making the compost isn't that hard. Uh, what you want to do is you want to be, uh, you want to put layers of organic material out, and I say 48 inch by 48 inch by 48 inch because that's that's usually about the, the size of a good compost bin because you're going to have to be, uh, unless you make it really big, you're going to have to be turning this by hand, and that's really about 
about as much as you really want to try and do uh, by hand on one area. And what you do is you build two, you build them side by side, the two forty-eight inch uh, containers. And uh, and again, one of the reasons I say forty-eight inch is because that's usually the size of the uh, of the shipping pallets, you know, the, the the wood shipping pallets. And a lot of times people use those to uh, to make a make fit makeshift uh, compost container. You know, you just uh, Put uh, uh, like five uh, or more of those together, uh, side by side, and you end up with with two uh, kind of walled off areas. The reason I say you need two is because you're going to need to turn it. A lot of times that that means you're going to need to have one empty bin, so you can take and let the compost uh, uh, begin its decay, and then you can shovel it into the container right beside it in order to mix it. Normally what you do is you'll take and lay down a, uh, like a uh, a layer. Your first layer would be something like, a, a, uh, let's say, three to five inches of of a brown layer consisting of, like, straw, leaves. Uh, and then on top of that, put, some, uh, put a green layer, which would be your fresh grass clippings, uh, the manure, and if you got some manure that's uh, still kind of hot, you put it on there. If you've got uh, all of your table scraps, anything that uh, that comes off your table should not go into the trash. And it comes off your plate, and other than meats, things like uh, meats that have a lot of fat and stuff in them, uh, those you don't really want to put those into your compost. But anything else, any of the vegetable matter, anything like that, bread, uh, you know, other vegetables that uh, that uh, that are not eaten or stuff that's gone too gone too long, anything like that. None of this stuff, uh, you know, all of all of the uh, skins and peels on potatoes and watermelon rinds, any of that stuff. None of that should ever go into the trash. It goes straight into your compost bin on your on your green layer. Uh, and then you you keep alternating. You'll put down a layer of dry stuff, a layer of, uh, of fresh clippings and manure, a layer of dry stuff, fresh clippings and manure. And then you'll need to keep it moist. You'll have to have a certain moisture content in order for the, the microbial action to get, uh, to get started and continue. You won't get much decay out of a dry compost pile. But like I said, we're going to have somebody come on and talk to you about this because there are several folks that I know that are really good at this. And compost is going to be one of the most important parts of your garden because it's going to be able, it's it's what's going to cause uh, you to be able to get the right soil mixture and be able to get to the, the right nutrients uh, in the soil. So we'll have some people to come on and talk about that, but that's what you'll do. That's the, the, the bare bones of it. You'll be putting down the the drier layers mixed with the wet layers and uh, then you'll end up turning it. Uh, you'll be keeping it moist and you'll be turning it and mixing it uh, on a regular basis. So, now there's also uh, 
you can also buy like commercial composters and stuff like that. Uh, but normally those are for smaller, you know, like container gardens and stuff like that, or for smaller operations. Uh, but once again, we'll have somebody to come in and talk about that. Now mulching, uh, the the mulch that you see in the gardens that is the that's the stuff the organic material that covers the soil and that you you want to have your bare soil mulched if at all possible and you can do this with uh, with hay or straw or grass clippings shredded bark uh, anything kind of like that because what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep the soil sheltered and insulated from uh, from either the, hot, the heat or the cold, because when you have the sun shining down on that bare ground, that bare ground heats up, and it uh, and the water uh, gets boiled out of the dirt. So you need something to keep the sun from hitting the dirt, and uh, the same thing with the cold. If it gets uh, too cold, you don't want that cold going straight to the dirt which we talked about earlier is going to be 25% water, which is a conductor of heat and cold. Uh, you want something to keep the temperatures from being in direct contact with that soil. And you're going to use a mulch to do that. It keeps the sun from drying the soil out, keeps it from getting too cold, too hot. And uh, you can you can do that with a lot of different materials. And what you'll do is... Uh, you know, once you've got your garden planted to where you want it, you can take and and then mulch it. Usually, what I do because I have a, a large amount of it here is I use uh, I'll use hay, and uh, I use hay that has a lot of uh, uh, coastal grass in it because the grass is a lot finer, uh, the smaller particles and stuff. It's easier to work around with. And what I'll do is I'll just once the seedlings are up, I'll just uh, put a Thick layer of hay down with just uh, you know with just the uh, the seedlings sticking up out of the the ground and uh, <clears throat> and that helps keep the water uh, from evaporating too quickly. It helps keep the weeds from growing up because you're denying uh, sunlight and stuff to the to the dirt by covering it. You can also do this with inorganic matter, things like uh, uh, plastic, uh, that black plastic that they put out, or the the landscaping fabrics that they have now. You can lay that down on the soil, too, and uh, that will keep the evaporation of the weeds down and stuff like that. But uh, the, the inorganic mulches, don't benefit the soil by breaking it up, you know, and becoming part of the organic matter for your garden for the next year. It's because that's one of the byproducts of, of mulching the soil in your garden. <clears throat> Is that once you get through with uh, with your harvest and uh, that organic matter is going to keep the wheat continue to keep the wheat down. But then, when it's time for you to work the soil up again in uh, in the early spring, you're going to be able to work all of that mulch into the soil, which will then become part of your 
uh, of your soil mixture, and they will add their nutrients when well, you know when they're breaking down. It will improve the soil's uh, structure and the amount of nutrients. So, uh, so take that take into consideration the fact that whatever you're going to use for your mulch, uh, especially if you're using organic mulch, that uh, that it's not chock full of seeds of uh, you know of uh, of whatever it is like. Uh, uh, if you're using straw, make sure that it's just the straw that got bailed up, uh, and not the whole uh, the whole oats or, or wheat or, or rye or whatever, especially rye. Uh, make sure that it's not the whole plant, because then those seeds will end up getting worked into the soil, and they're going to try and grow. <coughs> uh, fertilizer. You can use uh, dry or liquid fertilizers, uh, adding it to the soil that uh, that it might find a hard time. The soil might find a hard time getting the nutrients in some other way. Uh, the organic fertilizers uh, tend to work a little slower than the than the bagged up chemical uh, fertilizers. But they also they are also releasing those nutrients over a longer period and in a in a lot safer fashion. Uh, the the chemical fertilizers that you put in you can you can put in too much in some areas and then they're going to get released all at once and it can be uh, it can be uh, not that great. For the for the plants, it could be a little bit stressful for them, but it might be something that you need to to add. So, and we'll talk about that in just a second too when we're talking about getting the the soil uh, analyzed. Uh, one of the other things you can think about uh, is once you're if you're got a garden that you're going to be using every year and. Uh, and it's going to be in the same place, is planting a cover crop on it. And these are these are usually fall crops. These are crops that are going to grow through the fall, and they help protect the soil from, uh, you know, wind erosion, uh, from, uh, from runoff uh, erosion, and... They're also going to add organic material, and the root structures that they're going to grow, they're going to send down in the soil, are going to uh, are going to be working to help uh, get the correct soil texture. Because you know, plants send their roots down in the soil; those roots break up the soil as they're as they're going down in the soil, and they're spreading out, <clears throat> and then. <clears throat> that's going to cause the soil to be uh, to be semi-friable, and then you're going to harvest. Or you're not going to harvest them; you're just going to to let them uh, decay back into the ground. But that's going to to leave those roots when they decay uh, as part of the nutrient mixture. Uh, and you can use uh, 
things like rye uh, and alfalfa, uh, those are very common uh, cover crops. And uh, certainly one of the things about rye is that uh, if you plant a dense crop of rye on your uh, on your garden, and uh, you'll probably end up with some rye seed at some point. Now, you're, you'll, you normally you'll be uh, turning the rye back into the soil before it seeds out, but uh, but the the seed crops, I mean the cover crops, will help you uh, keep the soil uh, keep the soil friable and working even during the the winter season. Now you can also you can also there there are not many, but there's a few winter crops that you can grow. Uh, and if you uh, if you are going to plant in a different area or you're going to let that that one garden spot uh if you're going to give it a, a year off or something you can also plant uh some different cover crops like some legumes that will fix nitrogen into the soil for that year uh make sure that you don't let the cover crop seed you know that you that you manure them into the soil before they before they they head out with seed, and uh, make sure that you've done this oh, about three weeks or so before that you're going to begin planting. Now, I think Sam was talking about this a few minutes ago about the pH. Uh, you can get the they're going to give you the pH, and there's plenty of uh, of home test kits and stuff that you can you can use to test your your soil's pH. <clears throat> but regardless of what the the answer is or whatever the, the readout is, if it's saying that you're missing uh uh if the soil is uh, too acidic and uh, you're gonna need to tone it down by adding some lime or something like that, don't think that that, that one dose a lime is going to be a cure-all thing, and it's going to bring it up to snuff or anything like that. Uh, uh, it, getting the pH balanced out is going to best be done by continuing to work the soil, uh, work organics into the soil until you've reached the, the your target pH. Now, don't forget that uh, that some plants like acidic soil, uh, there are some plants that really thrive in that. Uh, blueberries, azaleas, things like that. But but most soil, most plants don't. Uh, if you're going to raise the pH uh, on a soil like a sandy soil, uh, you can raise it about a point or so by adding uh, by adding uh, like three or four pounds of uh, ground limestone for every 100 square feet. 100 square feet, that's a 10-foot by 10-foot section. So about 4 pounds for every 10-foot by 10-foot section will raise 1 point. Uh, if you've got a real loamy soil, uh, 7 to 8 pounds for 100 feet, 
10 pounds per 100 feet for clay soil. And the remember, the lime's going to have to be put into the, the, the soil two or three months ahead of the planting time for it to do any good because they, when, when you're talking about limestone, you're talking about the, the, the lime that you're putting there. It's, it's limestone that has been ground up fine. So it's, you know, like a rock. And it needs, uh, it's going to need a few months for the line, the available line in the, uh, in the soil to get to activate That was my lovely wife. She came in to ask me if I wanted some coffee. <clears throat> so now's the time, the perfect time to do that, right? That's one of the things you can be doing. Check your soil, see what the pH is. If you need to add line, go ahead and add it now. Add it now so that it can be, it can be breaking down so that it will be available for the crops when you begin planting them in the spring. Uh, you can also use wood ash if you want to raise the pH. But uh, but you've got to be kind of careful in using ashes, and I've certainly found this out myself, uh, by just thinking that I could just... Uh, that if a little bit of wood ash was good, why then a lot of wood ash would be great and adding too much because uh, the too much of the ash can certainly raise the the pH too high and it can also start sucking out and binding up uh, nutrients in the soil that you need to have available to the plants. It can be it can be binding them so that they're not, not going to be available. Uh, the uh, and the and you need to make sure that when you put it in that you do a good job of mixing it up because uh, because sometimes some some seeds that get into direct contact with a lot of the ash uh may decide not to germinate so uh if you have an alkaline soil then well, you're going to have to do just opposite. You're going to have to add some acid to it. And you can do that by uh, mixing in stuff like sulfur or sawdust or uh, uh, pine needles, uh, oak leaves, things like that. Uh, so uh, make sure that you get the... Uh, Get the pH, get the test, the pH tested, so you know exactly what your what your soil is, and that you put the uh, the correction uh, into it a few months uh, uh, ahead of time before you're planting, and then put yourself on a program to make sure that you're adding the organics to the soil, because when you get the right when you get the right mixture of organics in there. That's going to even even out the pH to what you need it to be. <clears throat> Pardon me, without <clears throat> having to make uh, corrections specifically for the pH. All right. What about the texture? Uh, if you got sandy soil, if you want to make it less sandy, you know, sandy soil packs pretty hard because there's plenty of times that I've I've gone out to the field and I've and I've been looking for sand that I need for some job or something. And I'll, you know, I, and there's certain different places out in the fields where there'll be a good uh, a good sand. 
And when it's moist, you know, it's it's like a good sand. It's almost like beach sand and stuff. But I'm sure you guys know, too, that uh, that when that sand dries out, they can be rock hard. And uh, it's no longer uh, the stuff that uh, flows freely through the hourglass. It's like concrete. Uh, and, of course, sand is one of the three components in concrete. So it can't be, and the sand will drain really well, and that's it. It won't hold the the, the, the water in place. So if you have a sandy soil, what you're going to do is to try and take uh, uh, between like three and five inches of organic stuff, compost, uh, uh, stuff like that, and work it into the soil. You can use uh, wood chips, leaves, uh, hay, chopped up hay, uh, straw, bark, uh, to mulch around the plants, and add uh, another two inches of organic material every year, right, to the soil. Because, like I said, the you, you added the initial five inches in, or, I mean three to five inches in in the beginning, but when the as the uh, organic material is decaying, then it's going to be uh, leaving the soil to some point, or it's going to be, it'll be turning into silt, and it won't be, it won't be of, it won't have the same ability to keep the soil texture uh, the way that you want it. Uh, if you've got silty soil, then you can improve it by adding an inch or so of organic materials every year. Now, make sure, like I said, try to avoid recompacting the soil if you work the organics into it. Try not to walk on it or or or, or, or till it or anything that doesn't actually have to be done. Uh, and uh, uh, doing things like using raised beds and stuff like that uh, is a real good way to do this. And that's, that's where you have the raised beds that are usually like, uh, you know, Four foot across at the most, and uh, and then you don't you don't uh, walk on them. Like I said, I keep a I keep a board, and I've I've noticed other people that have the a board too, and a lot of them even put padding on the sides that they're kneeling on, so they're not kneeling on the hard wood all day when they're working the garden. <laughs> but that keeps from like helps to spread the pressure out that you're putting on the soil, so that you're not comp, uh, compacting the soil, you know, when you're working on it. If you got clay, then uh, you want another two or three inches of uh, organic material worked into it, and then about another inch, inch and a half uh, uh, of, of organic every year, re-adding that in every year. And like I said, you can do that by adding in, by uh, working in your mulch from uh, from the previous year. Uh you want to make sure that there are no nutrient uh, deficiencies in the soil. Uh, it, one of the ways that you can you can add nutrients to the soil, you can add things like uh, bone meal. If you want to uh, uh, to try and correct uh, the phosphorus levels, uh, you can add blood meal. If you want to uh, to try and uh, tweak the nitrogen levels, uh, 
the and I don't I use it. I don't see anything wrong with it, but I will tell you that bone meal and blood meal are both byproducts of slaughterhouses. So if you've got uh if that isn't gonna work for you, then you can figure out something else. Uh if you if you don't want to use blood meal for your nitrogen, you can do stuff like uh, uh, fish emulsion. And that's, that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you can have alfalfa meal or alfalfa pellets, which is you know, like what they what they feed rabbits. Uh, uh, you can use cottonseed meal. Uh, uh, different things like that uh, that you can use to help uh, figure out the, or correct the (coughs) nutrients. Uh, So, uh, that will help you, uh, that will help you figure out, or help you correct uh, your nutrients. Now, (coughs) we're going to bring some folks on to talk about uh, some alternative methods to uh, to traditional gardens. These are going to be things like uh, container gardenings, and uh, and over the last few years, uh, straw bale gardening has uh, really come into uh, into vogue because uh, it's it's really a great way uh, to do gardening. And uh, it's like uh, a, a ready-made raised garden. There's a lot of nutrients in the hay. That's where you take hay bales, and you use the hay bales as your gardening medium, and uh, and you use the hay bales to actually grow the crops directly into the hay bales. And uh, this is not it's not complicated, but it's not simple either. So we're gonna have we'll have. Uh, uh, some guests want to talk about hay bale gardening because uh, I really I think it's kind of neat. I I have not personally done it. Uh, I've done because whenever I was doing gardening on a smaller scale like this, I was using different containers. Uh, but uh, but I've certainly had uh, quite a few folks that I know that have done it, and and it has worked really well for them, and uh, certainly a great alternative to uh, to conventional gardening types, but we'll have somebody on to, uh, and we'll devote a good portion of one of the shows to this. Uh, I've done stuff like uh, container gardening, and uh, I remember about uh, 30 years ago, uh, I was really big into what they called uh, uh, the Japanese tomato rings, and this is where you took uh, some, uh, like some field wire, I mean, uh, like some uh, it could be like chicken wire or something like that that was about uh, oh, 48 inches to uh, 5 feet tall and you would uh, form it into a cylinder it was about uh, oh, about 36 inches across so you had like a little ready made cone that was there and then you started filling that cone up just like you would in a compost pile and uh, and letting the soil uh, begin and you had to do this uh, well well prior to planting time 
but then you would fill that up and then you would plant uh, in a circle around it you would plant your tomato plant you put usually i think i'd plant like uh usually between four and five uh tomato plants of whatever different variety i was using and then uh you would end up planting those just on the outside of the ring and then you would use the uh, the cone the ring there you would use that to pin your the, the vines to the tomato vines to and the the stack of uh, organic material that you have inside that cone is going to continue to decay throughout the growing season release all the nutrients and I'm telling you that that the five or six plants that you plant around this ring were worth uh, uh, at least three to four times their number in plants that you would plant traditionally uh, in row crop gardening and stuff like that. The, the the number of fruits that you would get and their quality was was extremely amazing. Now, if you if you just Google Japanese tomato rings, you'll you'll get the info on that. But there's plenty of different uh, types of container gardening that you can do as well. You know, if you're short, short on space, there's no reason still that you can't be uh, consider considering container gardening to help uh, put food on your table because it can be done uh, it can be done pretty easily. Sam, you ready to jump in? Sure, sure. Uh, you know when uh, you you get those concentrations like that of those plants around those circles. Uh, the next year, as that stuff keeps rotting down in there, that becomes a, 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 a what I call an island out there. I had right. issues with planting like that, uh, and I decided that I would make my uh, my garden into a bunch of islands like that <laughs> uh, because it was so dry. <laughs> Out here, right. it's so hard to get everything to work its way into the soil. I made islands like that. I would take my rototiller and chill out a, a, a deep row and shovel every bit of that clay out of there and throw it out at a garden. Right. And then till the bottom of that ditch again and fill it up and turn it into just like one of those uh, planting circles like that and then right. plant on the edges of it. And then the next year, I just moved over and planted where the where, where the walking row was. And by alternating those over a couple of years, I managed to get enough organic material into that soil out there uh, where it worked really great, and, and it's holding my moisture. And now that thing puts out like uh, almost like as densely as a container garden. I grow more wow. there than I could possibly eat. Well, that's one of the reasons that, and and if folks if folks are listening, if they want to go ahead and Google uh, straw bale gardening, and they can do that. They can do that, and they can take a look and see what uh, what we're going to be talking about. Because uh, uh, straw bale gardening is one of the ways that you can uh, escape if you have really poor soil conditions, or if you have uh, like. Uh, like you're talking about, or like uh, like the 
the uh, thousands and thousands of other folks, uh, especially out uh, in your area, Sam, and like West Texas and stuff like that, because when you when you drive through the like the urban areas and stuff out in uh, West Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that in a lot of the urban areas, the people don't have grass lawns. They usually don't have hardly any vegetation at all growing in their yards. It's just dirt. Uh, I mean, a lot of people will, will go and get gravel and stuff like that and spread it out or... And some people will, uh, you know, with water the lawns and stuff like that. But there's, it's really hard in the desert to get things to grow on that ground. Uh, so, so taking the using the uh, straw bale gardening is going to be a way you can jump around that real easy. You know, like I said, we'll be talking about that because you're just you're going to be using you're going to be planting directly into bales of hay and. Uh, and that makes it a lot easier. So, you know, and, and now's a good time to be hitting up those seed catalogs and picking stuff that's going to grow for your area. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, you you need to be thinking about that now, and for two reasons: one, you want to stock, you want to keep a uh, a stock of seeds on hand, uh, whether you're going to garden or not. Because you may something may happen where you're you're forced to uh, to get a lot of your food out of the gardens. You know, during World War II, uh, Americans kept victory gardens, and that's where they got uh, a majority of their uh, their fruits and vegetables for their own tables was in the victory gardens. Everybody was everybody raised a garden that uh, that allowed them to uh, to feed themselves and help funnel. A uh, uh, the the crops that, that were being grown commercially and stuff helped help funnel those crops into the uh, you know into the war effort. But you need to be thinking about the stuff that you want to grow, the stuff that you want to eat. Uh, like I said earlier in the show, you know if you don't like certain plants. Uh, if you don't like certain fruits or vegetables, then don't waste the space in your garden growing them unless unless they're going to be of some other value some other way. So make sure that you're picking out the things that you want now. <clears throat> and <clears throat> thinking about how much of it you want, how much you're going to need uh, of each of the types of uh, fruits and vegetables, how they're going to, uh, how well they're, how fast they're going to grow so that you'll know how how rapidly you can get uh food from the uh from the garden to your table uh you know because uh, different uh, crops take different at- amounts of time to mature <clears throat> what the the planting times is you know the earliest you can plant stuff in your area and the uh the USDA has already zoned out all of uh, the uh, the nation, so you can very easily look at the USDA maps, find out what zone you're in, when they recommend planting, and uh, what they recommend planting for your area. Uh, and then on top of that, you can get a jump on this because you can uh, start your seedlings indoors. This will give you a, a big advantage 
on trying to grow crops uh, in the spring because uh, if you wait until it's safe to plant outside, uh, then you're going to be scooting back your the date of your harvest by uh, a few weeks. You can actually start your seeds indoors where they're you know where they're safe, and uh, we'll we'll have some folks on to talk about that too, so that the the seeds uh, are sprouted and they're ready to go, and they can be taken directly from inside and put into the garden outside uh, at the earliest uh, safe date. And this will give you a, this will give you a pretty big jump on uh, uh, on your harvest dates. Also, it's going to be much uh, much more economically feasible. You can go down and you can buy the seedlings that are already started and ready to go. And you can get a uh, like a container of six uh, tomatoes for like I don't know, you know a buck and a half, two and a half bucks, something like that. <clears throat> for each six, but you can buy a uh, a package of seeds for a dollar, and you can get a couple of hundred plants for that dollar. So it's going to be a lot uh, a lot more economically feasible for you to grow your uh, to to start your own seeds and uh, and start them indoors <clears throat> and. Uh, transplant them into the garden once it's safe to do so. So figure out the the type of fruits and vegetables that you want. Think about how much you're actually going to be realistically be able to eat or save or trade off to your neighbors, stuff like that. And when they need to be planted, how long it's going to take from uh, from planting to harvest. And <clears throat> Uh, and figure out what parts of the garden you're going to use for which uh, which fruits and vegetables, and then you can also plant in stages. That means that uh, if you're if you think it's going to take uh, I don't know 20 bushels of corn uh, for you to survive, uh, you know the the year for you and your loved ones to survive. <coughs> then uh, part of that is going to be fresh corn, then you don't want to plant the equivalent of 20 bushels all at once if you're going to be eating this corn because what you'll end up with is 20 bushels of corn that's ready to go right then and there, and uh, you're not going to be able to eat that much. So you want to plant it uh, certain areas. You want to plant in stages so that instead of having all of your crops uh, mature all at once, uh, that they're maturing at different uh, times, you know. Uh, if, you're, if you're planting, a, you know, a three or four feet of uh, uh, of a certain crop and then a week later, three or four feet, and a week later, three or four feet, so that you're getting, uh, so that you're getting constantly maturing plants, but at different times. One That'll help you, folks. Uh, uh, go ahead, Scout. Well, I'm just going to say that'll help you. That'll keep you from getting, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of your uh, tomatoes right at once. Because, like I said, there's only there's only so much uh, that you can eat uh, of 
of the fresh fruits and vegetables uh, at one time. <clears throat> and then you can plan also, though, on either uh, uh, trading them for something or for canning or preserving some other way. So go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, invariably, somewhere along the line, you're going to come up with just too much of something. Usually it's zucchini, unfortunately, but if uh, if folks take care in when they're selecting their crops that they're going to plant, and when you're first starting off, you're experimenting, uh, look for things that grow well in your area naturally, stuff that they grew there 100 years ago because they were able to do it without uh, a lot of artificial inputs, but also learn how to preserve those crops uh, to make them useful so that when you end up with a glut, uh, you'll know what to do with it. You don't have to waste it. Uh, if you end up with too many green beans, what are you going to do with them? What can you do with green beans? <laughs> if you're not into canning, well, you can dry those darn things. Uh, I used to eat a lot of dried green beans when I was a kid. Uh, my grandmother put up tons of them. She actually preferred them that way, and she didn't like canning much. Uh, right. Learn the different ways that you can handle that excess crop when it comes up. Uh, it may be that your neighbor comes up with an excess crop, and if you have a way that you can preserve it uh, reasonably and quickly, uh, you can come on to some food and you can help your neighbor out too. And then right. if times get really rough, uh, you'll have put some by and you'll know how to set it up so that you can preserve that food for when it's really hard times. Uh, yeah, we have folks five there. bushels of tomatoes at the end of the year. That's what right. What do you do with them? Now, you want to you want to make sure that too that whenever you are uh if you are planning on on doing this in a self-reliant fashion that when you're selecting these seeds for you to put in the ground that you're looking closely at heirloom variety seeds. And the reason you're doing this is because the heirloom variety seeds are seeds that are going to produce plants that will produce seeds that will be true to their uh, to their uh, to their mate. What I mean by that is that you'll have uh, a lot of seed in our hybrid seeds. That means that they've been crafted in a way that uh, they will grow this. When you plant them this year, they'll grow exactly what they say that they'll grow. They'll grow a certain type of squash or a certain tomato, whatever. But when you try and use those seeds, again, you're not going to get the same crop because they're not producing seeds that are true uh, uh, to their to their variety. Uh, they've been hybridized. So make sure that, and, and you know, that, that doesn't always mean that you can't grow something from it. It just means you may not get uh, what you were expecting. It may not turn out exactly like what you were expecting. So if you want to make sure that you can use the seeds from the fruits and vegetables that you plant to grow those exact same things, make sure that uh, that you're using an heirloom variety seed. Uh, I think it will be well worth your time. So you can, some of the, the fruits and vegetables that you'll harvest, that's one of the things you want to do, is to harvest the seeds from them. 
because if you buy if you if you lay in uh, a year or two years worth of seeds, that means you can grow fruits and vegetables for uh, a year or two years. And what do you do after that? If you don't have some place you can go for seeds to buy more, what are you going to do? How are you going to how are you going to do it? And the answer is that you're going to have to harvest the seeds from the plants that you grow. So make sure that uh, that you're paying kind of close attention to to that to the uh, to the fact that you're going to need to harvest some of the seeds in order to grow those crops again the next year. That means you're going to have to you're going to have to make sure that those seeds that you harvest and you've, that you've taken the time also to learn how to safely harvest those seeds and ensure that they're going to be viable for the the coming year because it takes a little bit of a skill to make sure that you are preserving the seeds correctly. All right. And then uh and then make sure that you're that you're thinking about things like canning and drying. Now a lot of uh a lot of fruits and vegetables can be dried. Just like Sam was talking about. You can dry them out. They're still good. You can dry tomatoes. You can sun dry tomatoes. Sure can. Sure I mean that can. makes uh that makes a product that people pay big money for in those fancy uh those fancy restaurants and stuff like that. Sun dried tomatoes. And it's not that hard. Uh but you need to know how to do it. Uh, you know, you can slice them up and and uh, put them on dryers. You can make uh, 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 hydra- dehydrators, uh, and you can dry out the tomatoes and uh, and tons of other fruits and vegetables so that you can store them away to, and use them uh, during the winter by just rehydrating them. It's, uh, it's really one of the one of the easy ways to uh, to prepare foods for storage, and then uh, recently we were taking a look at canning too. People always say, "Oh, canning—that's uh, and that's too complicated. That's too uh, that's too hard to figure out or too hard to do." And it's really not. It's really uh, it's really a pretty simple operation. It takes a it's a little bit gear specific, which means you have to have uh, the right type of gear to do it, which is you know cans and lids and uh uh and some uh containers uh in order to uh you know to to heat the uh the stuff up the can but it's really pretty simple i'm telling you if the folks could do it uh 200 years ago then uh, they can do it now uh and it's a great way to to maintain control over the food that you're going to eat through the through the winter months, and I know a lot of people that do it. Uh, a lot of people really get hooked on it, and uh, they'll can uh, for several weeks during the year, and and they produce uh, a quality of food that's really much higher than you can get almost anywhere. You can your own foods, and you're canning a, a quality, high quality product that you grow in your garden. I'm, I'm telling you that the difference between opening up a mason jar of your canned food and tasting it and opening up, taking the uh, can opener and opening up a metal can and pouring that out and cooking it is two different worlds. Those are two different worlds as far as the quality of the product and the taste that you're going to get. So that's uh, another thing to think about. Uh, Those things all come uh, together in a head. Uh... You know, Thanksgiving, 
that big feast, that's all that stuff that you couldn't get dried and canned. And we're not right, going to let right. it go to waste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, we're going to eat, that's, the, that's we're gonna eat as much as we can here at the at the harvest time. Eat as much as we can, you know, for the next uh, week or two. <clears throat> because a lot of it ain't going to be able to save, you know, not in, at least yeah. not in the way that you would like. You know, the seeds... You can take the pumpkin seeds, and you don't need that many in it, but you can almost get all you need from uh, one or two pumpkins. But all the rest of the seeds, you, know, you can harvest those seeds, you dry them out, you can eat those, or they grind them up and eat them. Uh, the uh, let's see, potatoes, <laughs> yeah, you take potatoes and onions and stuff, and those get clamped in the basement, and uh, and uh, that's where you take uh, and you put them either in sand or layers of uh, uh, of like hay or stuff like that uh, down in the basement where it's cool and dark and uh, try and get them to last as long as they can. Uh, now, they, usually they won't last all winter, but they'll, they'll last a good ways into it. Uh, but uh, but you're right. You know, before you could do a lot of the canning and stuff, that's it. That was going to be one of your last uh, really big, fresh meals. So... Yeah, that, but, that beef uh, jerky that we use for a snack, that was a way to preserve meat when you didn't have any other way. Oh, yeah, so that it and... Uh, it wasn't a snack. <laughs> they they would jerk yep. whole beefs. <laughs> Absolutely, they would. Yep, I remember my grandparents doing it. And also, we, they would have... Uh, you would have a lot of salt pork. That's where you take yep. the, the pork, the, the cuts of pork, the bacon, the hams, and stuff like that, and they would be packed in salt. First, they get smoked. They would get smoked really good. Then they would get packed in salt, and uh, that preserved them. You know, it would suck all the suck all the water out of them and preserve them. And uh, salt pork. I mean, I still uh, I actually still like salt pork. You know, you can't find it much anymore, but. Uh, Make but that would certainly be a way that they would preserve it. Yep, and uh, and you, the people would uh, uh, they would jerk whole beefs, uh, deer, moose, bear. I remember uh, uh, staying at our friend's house in Wyoming, and we were sleeping down in the basement. And there would there was a moose and a beef and half a bear down in the basement that were jerked, and. Uh, and they were hanging there, and you would just cut a, uh, you know, a chunk off of it to take with you. And uh, I mean, that's just that's the way that people did it. Either that, or if, like you, if you wanted fresh meat, you would usually go in with several neighbors, and you would butcher uh, one of your calves, and you would share the meat with your neighbors. And then they would end up, uh, you know, a month or two later, butchering the, one of theirs, and they would share it. And that way, everybody got, uh, you know, fresh meat on a regular basis uh, without having to waste any. And, uh, you know, everybody got got the uh, the responsibility of, uh, uh, you know, of, of doing it and helping out with their neighbors. <clears throat> the same thing has that, uh, like you said, with the, uh, with the row crops and stuff. I know tons of people that, Every year at uh, harvest time, that uh, people will come around and say, "Hey, I've got, uh, you know, I've got like five or six extra rows of beets, or, or corn, or whatever. So come and get what you need out of it." And 
and that's what we do every year. Sure, everybody and then you also plant. Or... Yep, you plant extra yourself so that you can turn, you know, you can do the, you can respond to the same favor. I planted extra uh, jalapeno peppers uh, two years ago so that uh, I had way more than I needed. I think I ended up with, uh, I don't know, four or five bushels myself and then another four or five bushels that, because uh, I didn't expect all of them to make up as good as they did or to be as abundant as they were, but they did. They were very prolific, and uh, and they continued to produce late into the year, and we had more than we could use, uh, even after uh, canning a bunch up uh, for our own use and to give away as gifts, we still ended up with a ton extra, so... Uh, so that's, uh, that's another thing to consider. <laughs> well, listen, folks, uh, I want to thank everybody that was listening tonight. Uh, uh, Ed Healer, Hank Fire, Captain Wall, 264 Winchester, uh, all of the folks that uh, contrib- contributed to the discussion tonight. And, uh, and we certainly thank everybody for, uh, for listening live, and we thank all of the folks that are going to listen to this in the archives and like I said, over the next uh, few weeks, we'll, we'll be bringing on additional guests to speak about specific uh, gardening techniques and uh, and practices because uh, this is something that's really important. And it's not just important for the end of the world, guys. Uh, it's important because you control, you have the ability to control uh the quality of the fruits and vegetables that you're putting into your, in your family's bodies by raising them yourself. You also eliminate uh, the cost of what you normally have to pay uh, to go and get those from these stores and stuff, and you can do this very economically. All right, all right Sam, thank you, sir. Uh, thanks, everybody else, uh, for listening, and uh, we'll see you this next uh, Thursday, 7 p.m., Central. Uh, God bless and keep
of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.